LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. My name's Greg Moffat and this is the end of the world as you know it. The beginning of the end of the industrial age is upon us and my guest today, John Michael Greer, will be telling us why. John is a certified master conserver, organic gardener and scholar of ecological history. The current Grand Arch Druid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America, his widely cited blog, The Arch Druid Report, which you can find at thearchdruidreport.blogspot.com, deals with peak oil amongst many other issues. In his compelling book, The Long Descent, John presents a challenging new vision of the future, traces the decline and fall of an industrial society fatally out of balance with planetary limits, and shows how personal change and local action can shape a better tomorrow. Hello and welcome John Michael Greer and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you very much for having me on. John, we are here today essentially to talk about the end of the world as we know it. (laughs) Specifically, um, as set out in your 2008 book, uh, The Long Descent, which is subtitled A User's Guide to the End of the Industrial Age. Mm -hmm. Now, perhaps the listeners, you could set out uh, an overview of The Long Descent and just your your basic premise um, in writing it. Okay, well, basically... There, there's a lot of misunderstandings about about our society and our, our um, role in place in history just at the moment. A lot of people have convinced themselves that we we live in the kind of very very abundant, very um, highly supplied with technology, very very lavish world with the lavish lifestyles we do because we're smarter than anyone who ever lived before us, or because we've, we've built up this vast amount of information. Or there, there are various versions of of the, the social mythology that kind of feeds into this. But when you take a hard look at the situation, the reason that we have all of the wealth and all of the abundance, the strawberries in January, all this kind of stuff, is that we've been burning our way through the Earth's stash of fossil fuels. We've been doing it at, at, an, at a remarkable rate. And the consequence of this is that we've been burning it at a rate that cannot be sustained. We've reached the point at this point that roughly half the Earth's original um, accessible quantities of fossil fuels are basically gone now. And what that means is that supplies are beginning to run short, just a little short at this point. More, there will be more of that as we proceed, and um, the further we go, the higher the demand goes, the, the more the supply declines. We're facing a situation in which we can no longer maintain the industrial society that we're used to. At that point, um, it's a fairly rough road because, again, you know, all, 
our entire society is geared to having things shipped um, across countries, across continents, around the world in, in container ships. Our entire society is geared to, have, to being able to replace vast amounts of human labor with machines powered ultimately by fossil fuels in one way or in the other. And you can't maintain the kind of society that we've got. You cannot maintain the size of the populations we have if you don't have that sort of lavish fossil fuel subsidy backing it up. So the long descent is the consequence of that. It's, it, I call it the long descent because it's not an instant thing. It's not the kind of overnight Hollywood fantasy collapse that so many people dream, dream about. It's a, it's a gradual process because the fossil fuels don't run out all at once. Yes, I mean, even in, uh, you talk about in a rapid collapse, even in, in like the original Mad Max and Road Warrior movies, mm -hmm. which are probably the, the Hollywood archetype mm -hmm. of that mm -hmm. sort of thing, uh, it opens the film with a segment about, uh, you know, the leaders talked and talked, but eventually, you know, the, the oil ran out and the great machine sputtered and stopped. And, and then mm -hmm. suddenly we all started cannibalizing each other. And that, that was a fairly dramatic, fairly short scale collapse. But what you're talking about, I mean, you, you, 100 years, 200 years, as we gradually move to a, a, a new world. Well, the, the thing that I point out is that we actually have a very good, a very large amount of information about how civilizations sputter and, and grind to a halt. Most civilizations in the past have, have done some variant of this. They've overshot their resource base, it, as it, just as we're doing. And they've been through the same process that we're facing on different scales with different technological bases, sure. But it's the same process. And it usually takes between 100 and 300 years. It, it's very fashionable to insist that, well, we're different, you know, we're special. But I see no reason to think that. I see I, my, my working guess is that we're in the early stages of a process of decline that's going to last far beyond our lifetimes. Now, the the situation regarding um, the oil supply uh, that you referred to is basically known as peak oil. Mm -hmm. And for the technical insight into that and, and all the numbers people can, for the time being anyway, can go online and kind of look mm -hmm. that up for themselves and make up their own mind. But one mm -hmm. thing that can't be... Um, how can I put it, manipulated or twisted or uh, changed in any way, is the fact that everything, as you referred to just a moment ago, in our modern world depends on oil. And mm -hmm. oil itself depends on oil for its production and transportation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I look around where I'm sitting right now, I mean, not only is all the plastic and all the systems that, that you and I are using to talk to each other, there's a plastic water bottle here. Uh, everywhere I look is plastic, which is all oil. And if it isn't plastic, it's some other form of semi-synthetic material which has been made from oil and oil to transport it, oil to manufacture it in the first place. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you can't move one inch in this world without coming across oil as, mm -hmm. as part of a process. Very much so. And of course, all of the other energy sources that we've got are also dependent on oil at this point. Coal, for example, is not being excav excavated at this point and shipped using coal-fired equipment. It's being mined with diesel machinery. It's being transported on either diesel trains or diesel trucks. And, and this is also true of the various green energies of which there's been so much hoopla. Okay, wind turbines, wind turbines are, are all, you know, these green energies, so we're told. But in fact, 
They're manufactured on equipment that, that is powered ultimately by fossil fuels. They're made of materials that are mined, prepared, synthesized, what have you, for either using fossil fuels or directly from fossil fuels, like fiberglass, for example. Um, they are there. The components are transported, assembled, set up, burning a lot of diesel power, and the continual maintenance that they require. Again, you've got to have somebody able to go out there in a truck, and that truck is not powered by a wind turbine. That truck is powered by oil. The consequence of this is that most of what we're being sold these days as, quote, green energy, unquote, is simply a roundabout way of burning more oil. Yeah, it's just a question of what, uh, it's not as direct, just, it may not send smoke into the air at the point of use, but uh, it doesn't yeah. mean that it was any less dependent on oil. And of course, exactly. all, anybody who looks at the renewable situation right now, whether you're a critic or whether you're an advocate, I mean, it's clear that they're nowhere near, I mean, they're, they're, they're fulfilling one and two percent sort of amounts here and there of, of energy requirements. Mm -hmm. And if you then look at what it would be required in theory, even if it could be done in practice, but in theory to get them up to a useful, providing a useful percentage of our energy, mm -hmm. you would then say, OK, that requires us to build however many turbines or however many um, photovoltaic cells. Mm -hmm. And what would that take in terms of our current energy use and the net mm -hmm. result would be that in order to get renewables up to something like a useful percentage we'd have to divert oil in massive mm -hmm. quantities away from things mm -hmm. that we use it for every day exactly uh, this this is one of the things that, that has been um, in, increasingly a source of worry in the peak oil community because most of these certainly the governments the advocacy organizations the corporations that are out there selling wind turbines and photovoltaic arrays and things like that nobody's talking about how much energy would it actually take to make these energy these, these potential future energy sources possible there's always an upfront cost when there was all that talk a few years ago about the hydrogen economy, we're all going to power our cars on hydrogen. Okay, fine. First of all, nobody was talking about how we were going to get the electricity to break apart water to, to manufacture the hydrogen. But the other problem is that, we, let's say you want hydrogen-powered cars. Think of how many trillions of pounds over the, or, and dollars, and choose your other currency units, over the last hundred years have gone into building the infrastructure that gets petroleum. Um, you know, through the from, from the well to the refinery to the, the you know, to the forecourt where it's sold to um, the user, and all of that stuff, all of that would have to be replaced from the ground up with a with a comparable hydrogen infrastructure, because you can't just you can't put hydrogen into an ordinary gasoline pump, you can't ship it over a ga over over a petroleum pipeline, the whole infrastructure would have to be bought and paid for before you could actually replace a significant fraction of your cars. And that immense overhang of money, of labor, of resources, and especially of energy, is something that our society can no longer afford to do. Well, one of, when we look at uh, possible alternatives and where mm -hmm. some action has been taken, one very sharp, painful example of what happens when you start to divert energy use away would be the whole ethanol debacle, oh, uh, which has uh, affected food production and food prices. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, I mean, all that they've been able to do, I, is broadly speaking, is pad out the supply of gasoline somewhat. I mean, you can't use 100% ethanol or even, even more than about 10 or 15% in an ordinary automobile without damaging the engine. 
So we've gone to all this trouble. We've manufactured the, this, this flurry of ethanol refineries. We've diverted huge amounts of food, um, food stocks into ethanol production, driven up food prices across the world, um, starved heaven knows how many poor people. And for what? So we can pad out our gasoline supply a little bit. Now, younger people uh, won't remember this, but those of us of a certain age will remember that a concern, quite acute concern about uh, dwindling oil supplies and, and the ramifications of it. Uh, there was actually a period in time when this was quite prominent, the 1970s specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you write in The Long Descent, there, w- there was quite some positive action at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then something happened and it all kind of got binned. That consciousness and that awareness went mm-hmm. away very quickly. And, uh, and then into the 1980s in the Reagan era, uh, era mm-hmm. rather, um, oil suddenly became very affordable again. And that mm-hmm. there was uh, any talk of austerity or a future of uh, reduced uh, resources or limited energy use was, was poo-pooed effectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, at, by the end, I mean, I, I, I was... I was involved kind of as a teenager underfoot in the alternative energy scene of the 1970s. I I expected to make my career in that field. And so I I remember there was a lot of very fierce debate because most people realized that you couldn't just keep on using fossil fuels indefinitely. That was going to end with with industrial society running face first into the brick wall of, of, of fuel depletion. So the two, the, the two proposals that were basically on the plate at that point were on the one hand, an approach using renewables and especially massive conservation and efficiency me- measures so we could maintain decent hum- humane lifestyles on a small fraction of the energy we now use. That was choice one. Choice two was to go whole hog into nuclear power and gamble that either breeder reactors or fusion power could be made commercially feasible before the fissionable uranium ran out, which is is actually a major issue because neither one of those technologies, neither breeder reactors nor uh, fission reactors, have proved to be economically viable. But that those were the t- nobody knew that at the time. Those were the two gambles. The two, both of them, long, you know, um, both of them very very serious challenges. Both of them with major upfront costs. And both of them very politically difficult. What happened in most of the industrial world at the very end of the 70s, the early 1980s, um, you had a bunch of um, what I think you'd have to call pseudo-conservative administrations get into power. Um, Thatcher in Great Britain, Reagan in the United States, and so on across the board, who said, no, 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 we don't have to do that. The free market, the free market is an omnipotent supernatural force, and it's going to solve all our problems for us. And, and in fact, we're going to get these, take these newly, these, these newly discovered reserves in the North, Alaska North Slope and the North Sea, and we're going to pump them like there's no tomorrow to crash the price of oil so that everybody's going to be happy again. We can all get the SUVs. It's happy motoring from here on in. Don't worry about the future. And I am embarrassed to say that a vast number of people across the industrial world in the United States and Great Britain and many other countries fell for it. Hmm. They looked at that and they said, well, yeah, but I, I'd really rather have the big car. I'd really, I'd really rather have the cushy lifestyle. Even though those oil reserves, the North Sea, the North Slope, were what was going to make it possible for us to make the transition one way or the other. That was going to be stretched out, eked out over decades, over a couple of generations to cover the, ener- the, the energy costs we couldn't fill from either the conservation renewables or the nuclear path. 
and instead we burned it to you know to manage thirty years of um, of luxury. That's like years of, of just of keep the party going. I suppose it's like being in the desert or something with your last liter of water, and you're deciding, you know, do I rinse my mouth out with this once a day, or do I use the whole lot to wash my hair right now? And saying, oh hell, I wash my hair, <laughs> and, and that's exactly what we did. Well, you know, and that's that's that was the issue. And so we we, we washed our hair and, and probably blow dried it, and and, the, <laughs> and now the vultures are gathering. And people are starting to complain, but you know it's a little late for that. Well, uh, unfortunately, we could have made uh, the, the nuclear option would have been a fatal dead end. I mean, that's that's pretty clear at this point. If we'd chosen the route of conservation efficiency and renewables, we could have made a relatively smooth transition into what um, in the book we'll be talking about um, another time. I refer to it as an ecotechnic society, into, an, into a situation where we're maintaining a relatively high level of technology and a fairly comfortable, decent, humane existence for, for people on a much, much, much lower energy basis. We didn't make that choice. Now we're in for it. Well, yeah, you mentioned um, the ecotechnic future, by the way. That's the, it's sort of like a companion piece in a way to the long mm -hmm. descent. I mean, people may as well know that's out there as well. Uh, well worth reading both of them back to back, I would say. But two things about nuclear that a lot of people doesn't dawn on a lot of people. One is that nuclear, the creation of nuclear power still requires a fuel source. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're not, it doesn't come out of nowhere. So, and that in itself, the fuel for nuclear reactors is dwindling resource on the earth anyway. And nobody has figured out what to do with the waste after all this time. Well, yeah, minor little point, yeah. The, in, fa in fact, the, the nuclear thing was always presented, back, certainly back in the 70s, as a, a, a way to bridge the gap. We're going to, we've got nuclear fission now, we're going to build out, we have to build out these thousands of reactors to churn out electricity to keep things going until um, either breeder reactors or fusion come online. And it was never something, everyone knew that it was never something that could last because it's only so much fissionable uranium. And the various things that are being talked about, the breeder reactors, the thorium reactors, all this stuff, all of that had been tried and it didn't work. Unfortunately, we were being promised in those days that fusion, that commercially viable fusion power was only 20 years off. And at this point, it's still at least 20 years off, and there's some reason to think they, will ne they may never get there. Hmm. But that was the gamble that they were taking, that, that we could do that and, and make the transition and end up with enough power from fusion reactors or from breeder reactors or what have you, that it wouldn't be a problem in the future. We could reprocess the waste. We, we could do it. Um, it would have landed us in a dead end. It would have landed us in a disastrous dead end. Unfortunately, basically, we're, we're there because we've got these millions of tons of lethally, lethally dangerous, highly radioactive, highly toxic used fuel rods scattered all over the world. And these are things that have to be isolated from the rest of the biosphere for a quarter of a million years. Hmm. Or they start killing everything they come into contact with. Well, quite. Um, the the very idea, uh, you know, that you put forward in Long Descent that we could be looking at, I say, not a sudden collapse, not the the end of the the species or anything like that, but but you know, the end of the world as we know it, the life that we've all had, has been for 
you know, 100 years or more and expected to go on into perpetuity. That the idea that's coming to an end for some people just seemed like an impossibility. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, always, they, they all sort it out, quote unquote, as they say. But it's worth remembering that not only societies uh, or empires, but entire civilizations have come and gone. And in some cases, if you read alternative history or prehistory, there seems to be some evidence that some great civilizations have disappeared almost without a trace so the idea that we are special is mm-hmm. simply a fallacy. It's, it's, it's a very comforting illusion, and people cling to it because otherwise they actually have to face up to the mess that we've made of our future. What we're facing, I mean, you can put it in very, the very simple terms that you find in, in a lot of histories of other civilizations that have done exactly what we're doing now. It's a, a process of contraction, decline, and breakdown, one to 300 years long, ending in a dark age. That's where we're heading at this point. And it's, it's all very well to say, well, we can do this, we can do that, we can go charging out and, and save the world and all that kind of stuff, but yes, that one's been tried too. And the number of people who are actually rallying around that banner is so small that I, I'm not greatly convinced that it's going to do much of anything. That being the case, if this is the direction we're going, I think we need to think about that and say, okay, what can we do to, add, to, to cushion this, to, the decline, to make life as decent as possible, for, not, not only for ourselves, especially not only for ourselves, but for the people who will come after us in the centuries and millennia to come. You address something, and I suppose some of the people we're referring to, you know, with the blinkers on, um, mm-hmm. are caught up in what you refer to in the book as the myth of progress, that things mm-hmm. have been getting better, generally mm-hmm. speaking, for a long time on a lot of fronts, and that will continue. And as uh, children of the, right, the East of 70s, um, I don't know about you, but I was fully expecting in the year 2000 uh, to take delivery of my bubble car. Which I was going to, <laughs> I was going to hover around in. I was going to go from one domed city to another. Mm, uh, mm, I was mm. going to eat paste, which was going to come out of a machine, and the paste would all look the same, but it would taste different. It would mm-hmm. explode in my mouth in a sensation of delight, and generally, and then we would probably go to Mars or something like that for an afternoon. Trip. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, by by two thousand, supposedly you should, or certainly by twenty twelve, for heaven's sakes, you should be able to go down to your local spaceport. And and pay a relatively modest fare, climb aboard the, um, you know the the British Spaceways or or you know what have you, um, you know six six thirty p.m. flight to the moon. You go up to the cities on the moon, and there's your know, bases on Mars. Humanity's expanding into space. Uh, but we were supposed to have solved all the problems of poverty and hunger and blah 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 blah. I, I grew up with that stuff. We, we all, I mean, all of us who, who were around in the 60s and 70s grew up with that stuff, the sort of Jetsons future, where um, the, people were talking in those days that, that since, of course, total automation of all economic activity was going to happen in just a few years. So the great crisis of the future was how would people find a way to use their leisure time once nobody had to work for a living ever again. People were saying this. People were taking that seriously. Um, it's very easy to get caught up in these fantasies of progress, but in fact, progress is was a fairly temporary phenomenon. It well, lasted for about 300 years. It's it's not a new book by any means. It came out in the early 90s, but it was a book by uh, an author called Jeremy Rifkin, mm-hmm. and the book was called The End of Work. Mm-hmm. And he was examining uh, a, a, the crisis of the advance of technology, actually, and how it was making great swathes of the population basically unemployed. Because mm-hmm. they weren't needed anymore, 
Uh, now, in the future, you envision we would come back very much into needing people again. But where we are right now, uh, with the way things are going, particularly at this moment economically, is giving the lie to that notion of a future where we'd be looking to do more with our leisure time. Because what we have now is people working part time who don't want to work part time, people working three jobs who don't want, work, want to work three jobs. And all the while we're being told that technology is getting better and more things are being done for us. Mm hmm. You know, so it's that 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 not only the domed cities and the bubble cars went away, but the idea of us sitting around in the afternoon in the park drinking wine and reading poetry that didn't happen either. It didn't happen at all, and it never was going to happen. It's it's very funny to read things from the 1970s that that were critiquing this sort of Judson's future. The and and yet you have to look hard to find those critiques nowadays. You have to look hard to find the whole Jetsons future business. Everyone kind of scuffs their feet and pretends it wasn't there. But because, of course, it, makes, it raises some real challenges to the, the current version of it, the, ver the, the idea that we're going to come up with some kind of limitless new energy resource. You'll hear that all over the place. The, the current versions of the our future is in space thing, the nanotechnology bubble, and the various other um, sets of, of ultimately religious claims. Because... The progress is our religion. It is the state religion of the modern world. It's very firmly established. Its high priests wear lab coats, and, and they receive the same kind of the, the same kind of lip service and the same kind of status that that you know archbishops had in the Middle Ages. And so, so you know, people believe in pro that progress is going to give them, you know, this this glorious future somewhere off in the undefined difference. And trying to tell most people nowadays that progress was a, was a temporary blip, that it was something that happened because we raided the Earth's cookie jar of stored carbon, that it basically, for all practical purposes, progress as we know it started in, in the 18th century and is ending in our lifetimes. It's like trying to tell a medieval peasant that heaven with God and the angels and saints and all that isn't there anymore. Hmm. People can't get it. They can't get their heads around it. They're going to have to. Because well, progress is ending right now. Whatever people might think about, if they're familiar with peak oil, peak oil uh, whatever they think about that issue, or whatever they think about any of the things that we've discussed so far, when I go out and about, I mean, we, we've turned the corner already. What you're talking about in the long descent is not something that, it's not yet more future things we might have to concern ourselves with. We have turned the corner. Mm -hmm. And if, if I travel somewhere, I see it everywhere I look. And you've referred to this sometimes in your um, your blog posts at the mm -hmm. Arch, Arch Druid Report, your um, your blog, mm -hmm. uh, the signs of decay, just physical decay. Mm -hmm. And you know, we hear about it on the nightly news if we bother to look or listen. You know, economic mm -hmm. numbers are in, unemployment's up. You know, I've never seen so many happy and unfulfilled people, even though uh, you know I'm happy and a lot of people I know are happy. We're not happy with everything, but we're making the mm -hmm. best of it, which again, I suppose, is part of your ethos. But you know, whether it's a you know a, 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 an office building that's four years old has never been occupied and it's to mm -hmm. let, or whether it's a factory that's closed down, and mm -hmm. or city streets that are not being maintained the way they mm -hmm. used to because mm -hmm. the money mm -hmm. isn't there. Everywhere mm -hmm. I look, I see subtle and not so subtle signs that we have turned a corner. The, if you want to put a date on the turning of the corner, the date is 2005. In some ways, there, there were a lot of a lot of this developed before that time. It's worsened since then. But 2005 was the year when the world reached its peak production of conventional petroleum. 
Now, conventional petroleum is the stuff that's relatively easy to get to. It's relatively cheap to produce. You don't have to put a huge amount of energy into extracting it from the ground. That's what powered our civilization. Since then, the, the you know, quote, petroleum production has remained basically flat. It's bumped up and down. But the actual production of conventional petroleum, again, the cheap, easy, um, high-energy stuff, has been declining. And we've been filling in the gap, we collectively meaning industrial society, has been filling in the gap with ethanol, with biodiesel, with tar sand extractives, with natural gas liquids, with anything that will burn to try to make up that widening gap between how much, how much we'll keep our society going and how much we're actually getting from the, you know, the standard old-fashioned, um, not hugely deep, not hugely difficult oil wells. Well, yeah, you mentioned tar sands there, and mm -hmm. there is certainly a scramble at the minute to almost literally wring the last of the mm -hmm. oil from, from the, the fabric of the earth. But what's not talked about a lot, you know, people talk, oh, we've got tar sands, you know, and there's X amount of oil to keep this going for however many years locked up mm -hmm. in, the, in this. But these uh, have major problems associated with them, and particularly thinking mm -hmm. of tar sands. Environmental impact is enormous. Okay, yeah. And yeah. key thing that a lot, of, a lot of people won't have been exposed to in talking about oil is basically the, the ratio of the energy you put into getting the mm -hmm. oil to the ratio out as it were which is basically the um the net energy left at the end of that process and that's another very big issue that's the that's in many ways the biggest issue of all thank you for mentioning it just to hear the words net energy on someone else's lips is practically a source of joy for me because nobody <laughs> wants to talk about it if i offer you a job and i will pay you i will pay you say um 10 pounds a day but you have to pay me 20 pounds a day to get it this is not a winning proposition. Okay, this is what happens when you go into negative net energy. If you can get a barrel of oil out of the ground, okay, fine. But if it takes you a barrel and a half to get that barrel oil out of the ground, that's not an energy source anymore. This is the case with a huge number of our supposed energy resources. It takes more energy to produce the energy you're getting than you get back from the process. And at that point, you're basically wasting your time. You're not actually producing energy. A lot of what's going on in, for example, the Alberta tar sands is that phenomenal amounts of natural gas, which is cheap at the moment, are being burnt to extract a relatively modest amount of, of tar from tar sands, and then that has to be processed, various things have to be done, all of it very energy intensive. Right now in North America, we're going through a natural gas bubble. We've got immense quantities of, of natural gas as a side effect of, of basically um, an economic bubble that's going on in shale gas. It's you know modest amounts of natural gas being produced and immense amounts of money being produced, mostly from Wall Street. But so, so that we we've got a little bit of a glut of natural gas here in, in North America, and that natural gas is being burnt like no tomorrow to get to other energy sources. So you have this this process of scraping the bottom of the barrel whether it's tar sands, whether it's um, shale oil. I mean, the big shale oil deposit has been known for decades. It's only now with oil prices upwards of $100 a barrel that it's economic to do the whole fracking routine and pump out the shale oil. And there's, you know, there's not that much of it. There, I mean, a lot of people have been making grandiose claims, but there's not that much of it. And the fact that we've gotten this close to the bottom of the barrel, the, the, you know, the, the pipe is gurgling as it tries to slurp up the last remaining crud at the bottom, this is a warning sign 
this yes. is something people should be going, oh boy, <laughs> time, time, time to hide under the bed. <laughs> I can imagine the globally being heard at a million decibels a sound a little bit like when I was a kid and I got to the bottom of a milkshake with the straw. Yeah, 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 the, yeah the, the, the sputtering that happens when the, when, when, there's, when there isn't quite enough to keep air out of the straw, that's what we're hearing right now. <laughs> now, net energy is also one of the big issues when it comes to renewables, mm-hmm. because, again, this is not talked about on the nightly news or on any of your mainstream documentary programs, mm-hmm. that, say, for example, as I understand it, you can put me right here if, if I'm not correct, that with the energy ratio into out for, say, the best quality oil, light, sweet, crude, could be as much as 200 to 1, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But right. talking about renewables, that is to say, you know, you expend this one unit of energy getting the oil and you get 200, which you can then use. I mean, that's a good deal by anybody's um, numbers. But with some renewables, it can be as little as 2 to 1. Mm-hmm. That's 100 times less stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you extrapolate that into an actual reality in a future, mm-hmm. it would say, like, can you imagine the world with, say, 100% less um, uh, you know, sorry, sorry, 100 times less of everything, less cars, less schools, less yeah, shops. Yeah, with, with, with 1% of the energy that we now use. Imagine everybody taking a 99% pay cut. Yeah. Yeah, that's better. But sorry, I mean, mental arithmetic has never been my strong suit. <laughs> well, there, there you go. But no, you're quite right. Now, in fact, there are, there are also a fair number of renewable energy sources, quote-unquote, that have negative net energy, where you have to put in two barrels to get one back. And the only reason anybody can do them right now is we still have the oil. Um, for, uh, and then you, you have some that are fairly close to break-even. Photovoltaics are that way. They're making a big splash about photovoltaics. Let's look at the energy that has to be used to make these things. It requires very complex technologies. It requires very highly refined rare earth metals, um, you know, silicon, pure crystalline silicon, or amorphous silicon. Um, has to be made in clean rooms under exacting conditions. Energy, 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 all to make a panel that will um, produce, you know, a, a, a very modest amount of electricity whenever the sun shines on it for 20 or 40 or however many years it lasts. So the the thing the thing that it it's great if you have a lot of energy now and you want to make a whole bunch of photovoltaic panels with some of that energy so that you'll still have energy when the oil runs out. It has some advantages that way. There are actually renewable technologies that do provide respectable amounts of energy, but they're not the kind of things that you can use to power an industrial society. Um, for example, solar hot water. Don't know how well that works um, in your neck of the woods, but in much of the world, you can put a solar water heating system on your roof and provide the vast majority of your hot water, say maybe 10% of your of you know your annual energy take. And this is a, this is a very important thing. Having hot water for you know washing dishes, washing clothes, all this is health-related stuff for baths and what have you. You can you can have a more comfortable lifestyle than you would have without it. You cannot run industrial society on nice hot baths. No, I mean, it's, this is not the same, you know, have, heat, heating your water to an acceptable temperature for use even in winter is not the same thing as keeping the lights on in London or New York or Tokyo. Exactly. But if you, if you, start, with the, if you start with the recognition that we're not going to keep the lights on in London and New York and Tokyo, and that, that's the hard thing for most people, once you get past that, you start looking at, okay, what can we do to, to arrange for 
a decent, humane, livable lifestyle for people in a post-petroleum post world. And things like solar water heating, that's a very important technology for that. That can save vast amounts of fuel. It can save vast amounts of trouble. It has health benefits. Um, passive solar heating for houses, same kind of thing. Um, wind on a small scale, not these gargantuan bird-killing monstrosities, that they're tacking up all over the landscape. Those only have value, well, mostly they have value as trophies to prove that, um, you know, how, how ecologically conscious one is if one is a politician. But they, they're meant to, fed, to feed the grid. They're meant to feed the fantasy that we can keep the lights on in, in London and New York and Tokyo. And if you get beyond that, you say, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to look at how much energy we can produce on a local small scale, and we can do that with the kind of little wind turbines that um, certainly in the Great Plains of North America, every reasonably prosperous farm had 75 years ago. So you're running you know, six light bulbs and a radio. Mm. Life with six light bulbs and a radio is preferable to life without it. You know, you've, you've got the ability to do things after dark. You've got, um, you've got a connection to the outside world. You can hear the news. You can hear music, this kind of stuff. Worth having. It doesn't keep the lights on in Tokyo. It doesn't keep the lights on in London. And so if we're actually looking at renewable technologies that matter, we have to look at the renewable technologies that will respond to the needs we're actually going to have in the deindustrial age and the realities of the very sharp limits to what we can produce, what we can do, what we can expect to save. Now, if anyone's in any doubt about the fact that uh, you know, they can look perhaps in the media and see a lot of news currently about the resource prices and where things are headed. I mean, the oil price isn't exactly through the roof at the minute, but you can see pressure on a lot of other areas, mm -hmm. um, including um, what you referred to earlier, you know, it's sort of rare earth metals and, and minerals. Now, a lot of stuff you look at the bottom and in the deep in the pages of financial papers, you'll find stuff about this all over the place. And it's been popular to say for for some time about war in the Middle East, for example, oh, that's about oil. And people almost are blasé about that now. Saying, oh, yeah, they went in there for the oil, so what? But think about it. So if they went in there and killed whatever, you know, a million people in Iraq or mm -hmm. what, whatever they've been doing over the decades here and there and continue to do, mm -hmm. you know, Libya, all what's going on in the Middle East, if they're doing that for oil, okay, that suggests that there isn't a lot of it. It's not that easy to get hold of, and they'll do anything to get it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, back in back in the 1970s, uh, President Carter, as it was then, proclaimed as a central pillar of American foreign policy that the United States must have access to Middle East oil, and we will do anything to get it. He said that publicly, and it's been this, it's been one of the centerpieces of American foreign policy ever since. That's true of, of all of America's allies. It's true of all of America's enemies. Everybody has their eye focused on the big remaining petroleum reserves because that's where the rubber meets the road. As far as the price of oil not being through the roof, by the way, last I checked, it's about $103 a barrel. And 10 years ago, when it was $19 a barrel, the suggestion that it would be $103 a barrel would have caused serious economic types to, to laugh. They would have said, no, no, it can never get that high. Of course we'll have enough oil. Well, guess what? Yeah, well, I think the thing there is one that, uh, in in my mind, I was probably thinking of relatively short term moves for mm. you know as to where the oil has been in the last year or so. But okay, also, yeah. there's undoubtedly a fact that we all be, we all get used to our new situation mm -hmm. quite quickly, and we forget about 
Uh, it's the same with price inflation in general. You know, oh yeah, you could get a pint of beer in the 70s for 30p and now it's, you know, 10 times that price or whatever. And mm-hmm. it, because it happens over a relatively long period of time, we come, yeah. we come to accept each little step. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We don't notice that the prices of everything, the price of everything is climbing. And especially these days when governments are massaging the statistics so, so remarkably, we insist, you know, the, the government says that inflation is under control. Of course, prices are going up quickly, but we're, we don't have any inflation. <laughs> it, it's very, very, very double speak. Oh, yeah, I'd refer people, uh, particularly in the U.S., to um, a website called shadowstats.com, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a gentleman mm-hmm. called John Williams. And if you want to have your eyes opened as to what the U.S. government's up to with its number crunching, you could mm-hmm. that's your one-stop shop. But you mm-hmm. mentioned food, you know, food price inflation is one of the things that's most pronounced at the minute. And, of course, it affects everyone. We've all got to eat. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're in a marginal financial situation, you're being squeezed, maybe uh, you know, lost your home, lost your job, you still got to eat, but then that suddenly becomes, you know, an, a bigger part of your expenditure. And mm, mm, mm. the proportion that families are spending on food now has been increasing quite substantially after decades of decline. Mm. And in that, we touch upon some key areas that are really going to be crucial going forward and will be very much affected by the the oil situation set out in the long descent. And that is, of course, mm. food, first of all, and then mm. our, our other great dependency, water. Mm-hmm. And, of course, on population itself and the population of the Earth, which continues to increase and not only mm-hmm. increase, but increasingly use energy, as we see in China, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the China, well, one of the things that needs to be factored in here is the relative decline of the existing major powers and the rise of China, India and a couple of other nations toward global power. China's getting a bigger share of oil every year. And... The United States at this point is having is having a fairly steady decline in its share of oil every year, which is one of the reasons our economy is going to going to pot, even though the politicians won't talk about that. Um, empires go. We've had an empire since um, since the end of the Second World War, when we basically elbowed in and took over Britain's empire. And you know, Britain Britain had its had its couple of centuries of empire, and before that, it was Spain, and so on. You know, it's, it's it's a very standard process. It's imperial states, hegemonic states that control large sections of the world rise and fall. The United States is very much on the downslope of its imperial cycle, largely because we massively mismanaged the process. And China's very clearly um, on you know taking you know taking in the resources we would normally claim here in the United States. So the fact that China and, and, and to, a lesser, to a lesser extent India, Brazil, a couple of other countries are increasing their share of petroleum, broadly speaking worldwide, many, many, many people are having to make do with less. And in particular, a number of the countries where um, energy use has been just phenomenally over the top, the United States again, where up until quite recently, the 5% of the world's population who lived here used 25% of all its energy and 33% of its raw materials and industrial product. That's not going to last. That isn't lasting now. And so there's a lot of redistribution going on. Population, though, uh, more broadly, I see population as an effect rather than a cause. Uh, Mm. we, we, We went through a period of immense energy abundance there was plenty of food, there was plenty of energy, there were plenty of resources, and so we got plenty of people. 
We've already seen in the former Soviet Union and a number of other places, population curves start turning down sharply, not because there's you know mass die-off, epidemics or zombies stalking the, you know, the, the landscape, but simply because the rate of births has dropped well below the rate of deaths. And so you have, you, you have this sort of demographic, this, the, the same demographic shift that gave us 7 billion people is actually reversing over large parts of the world, and you start having the death rate climb and the birth rate drop. And you start having just ordinary diseases, or the, the, of course, rates of alcoholism up, rates of drug abuse are up, rates of suicide are up, all the usual social stress things. And the population is beginning. It, it hasn't started to slump yet worldwide, but the climb is leveling off fairly dramatically. And I think we're going to see over the decades ahead that decline and decline and increase tip over into a downward movement. That's not to say it's going to be pleasant. That's not to say that it's not going to be a miserable experience for many of the people involved. But I don't think we're going. To, I, I don't. I mean, the, the claims that you get from some of the cornucopian types who insist, no, 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 we're going to have like like nine million, nine billion people, thirty billion people, what have you, is complete nonsense. The planet can't hold that many, the planet can't support that many. As we bump up against the limits to growth, we're going to see a lot more deaths and a lot fewer births. Now, in America, what's happening at the minute, um, I think it particularly makes the headlines because just for so long it was you know the land of plenty and everyone around the world wanted to go there and if not be American, at least have their chance at uh, living the American dream and mm -hmm. everything seems so prosperous and, and it was just, you know you know, milk and honey in the streets and streets paved mm -hmm. with gold, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a change happening there now, which is very marked and very profound, mm -hmm. you know, 50% drop in property prices in some places. Like, mm -hmm. Las, Las Vegas, I think, is particularly badly hit. <laughs> Ga gasoline mm -hmm. prices through the roof, people mm -hmm. being evicted left, right and center, tent cities, things that we normally mm -hmm. associate with the almost second world, if not third world, mm -hmm. cropping up in the States. And this is all happening at a time when we've got this, profound, we'll have had since 2008, this, the global financial crisis. Now, mm -hmm. to some extent, that's an artificial thing. It's having real effects in the real world, but we know mm -hmm. the money system is just a ghost of nothing, and mm -hmm. it doesn't really affect, it doesn't increase the resources we have, it doesn't decrease them. Well, I guess mm -hmm. it probably does cause them to be burnt through quicker, but yes. the, the, the artificial money construct system gets overlaid onto what's really happening with resources, and it makes quite a confusing picture. I mean, where do you mm -hmm. see the current economic crisis fitting in with what's happening um, uh, overall with regards to resources and energy? Okay. You already touched on the crucial point, which so many people miss, which is that money is not wealth. Wealth consists of actual goods and services produced through the use of energy. Money is a set of tokens, a set of abstract artificial, socially created tokens that allow us to distribute and arrange who gets how much of the available wealth. Since the arrival of peak oil in 2005, since, really since, since, the pla since we got onto the plateau in the very early 2000s, about, about a decade ago, there has been all of these economic problems that nobody in the, in the economics profession seems to be able to deal with. Because things are not happening the way they're supposed to happen. Um, the, the buttons and levers of the economy are being pushed and pulled and yanked this way, and things are not responding. The problem is they've gotten so used to manipulating money that they've forgotten that there's this whole other world of wealth. The wealth available to the modern industrial world is contracting. And so what are they doing? They're trying to 
improve, to increase the amount of wealth by increasing the amount of money. So we have qualitative e- or quantitative easing, okay? or whatever the, the various euphemisms that are used for printing money. At this point, the, the Federal Reserve Board here in the United States buys roughly two-thirds of our national debt every year. Are they getting the money from that for anyone else? No, they're printing it. They're literally running, spinning the presses, manufacturing the money, using that to pay, them, to pay off or to buy you know, bonds for, for the current national debt. This is Zimbabwe economics. And this is going on. We're not the only, the only country that's doing it, but the U.S. is certainly the leader of that particular pack. Trillions of dollars a year in, in money in, that's just being spun into existence to pay for debts that the U.S. is running on because it can't live within its means. This will not end well. The problem is that, again, the money system has become completely detached from the real economy of goods and services, which is contracting as its energy basis declines, until that's recognized. Until people, until people in some positions of authority start coming to terms with the fact that the industrial age is ending, that the amount of goods and services, the amount of real wealth that we have is going to contract from here on in, It'll be ragged, it'll be up and down, but it'll be mostly down from here on in for the next one to 300 years. And I think that... just, as it, just as it expanded for about 300 years, it's contracting now. And until we come to terms with that, the economic mess is just going to get worse. Well, I think one of the challenges um, for the, those of us who would like to live differently or do something about this, do something constructive at least on our, our own part, is mm-hmm. the, the time scale that you're referring to, which, you know, allows for a lot of kicking the can down the road. Because if you're mm-hmm. saying, oh, you know, in 100, 200 years, and even then we don't know how things are going to look. But this is a sort of order that we're talking about to have a, a great change away from the site we have now to something different. It's very easy mm-hmm. for people to sort of carry on and say, OK, I'll just put my head down again. That's fine. It doesn't affect me. I'll be dead. You know, if I'm lucky, mm-hmm. I'll live till I'm 85. And that's that. But a point must come, and as I say, referred to earlier, we have turned a corner where it's it's no longer just so easy to put mm-hmm. your head back down and carry mm-hmm. on because you're starting to feel just the first little trickles of that tidal wave starting to touch our toes now. It's kind of like you're coming up against the first signs that we mm-hmm. that the things are changing, and this reinforces your idea of not of a sudden overnight collapse, but of a gradual change. It's one thing mm-hmm. for people to wake up in the morning and turn on the TV and it's not working, turn on the radio, it's not working, and then suddenly there's a load of marauding people outside their house. That's sudden mm-hmm. collapse. The, the Hollywood fantasy, yeah. Yeah, and then you're, th- you're thrown straight into dealing with it. But in a way, this gradual creep, this gradual decline, come mm-hmm. stepping, stepping down the ladder, as you refer to it, in, in the long descent, that, that can be very difficult to deal with. And we do face social and cultural and technical challenges, but mm-hmm. ultimately it's in our own minds is where mm-hmm. the real battle with this is going to be fought. Mm-hmm. The crucial thing is to realize that it's happening, to recognize that it's underway. There is this great scene in, in the Monty Python film, um, Eric the Viking. The, I, don't, I don't know if you saw it, it's a, where the island of High Brazil is sinking, and King Arnold, I forget which of the pioneers it is that talks about this. King Arnold is there giving this big speech about how, well, of course, there are all these fantasies and rumors about how High Brazil is sinking, but we all, let's face facts, we all know we've got all these protections in place, nothing's happening, the water's rising up above his knees as he's saying this. Okay? 
And it's actually one of the best images for what's going on right now as people try to make believe that there isn't a problem. But if you look around yourself, if you pay attention, if you notice that just putting your head down and keeping on going is landing more and more people in financial catastrophe because the jobs that they counted on being there goes away. Hmm. We can't, sooner or later it sinks in that we can't just keep putting our heads down because it doesn't work. Because we put our heads down and walk ahead and all of a sudden we're, we've fallen off the cliff. Because it's, the, the, the idea of sudden collapse actually does have some relevance. It's just that it's not hitting everyone at once. I forget who it was that said, you know, the apocalypse is here, it's just not well distributed yet. When, when, somebody, when some middle class person who's, who has a decent job and he has a house and he has this and that, and all of a sudden the job goes away forever, and there are no more positions available. I mean, there's lots of, there, there, there are still some, but there are 66,000 people applying for every position, and you're not going to get it. That person has just been through collapse and is going to have to downshift. I know a lot of people like this where, you know, they're, they're moving in, they're, they're moving back in with their parents. There are, there are you know, eight or nine people and there's one salary because that's, you know, there's only one person left with the job. And so you have to start growing food in, 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 in your back garden or in your allotment or what have you. You're, you're, you have to start conserving energy, saving this, recycling things, not, not like taking it to a recycle center, but actually repurposing things yourself. You have to start making do with salvage. You have to start using your own labor to produce goods and services in the household economy because that's the only thing you have left. And each person who goes through that is actually going through the collapse of a civilization. It's just one person at a time. Exactly, and all these different degrees it may all be heading in the same direction. But you know, for example, it was reported um, yesterday on the news. One example that comes to mind was that Jaguar uh, Land Rover, uh, mm-hmm. maker of luxury vehicles, selling to the world. That you know, great profits rise from them, mm-hmm. uh, and this obviously more people are buying their vehicles than ever before. Maybe not in terms of numbers, but certainly they're making more money doing it. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy in the media. Uh, within the last year, talking about the sales of uh, Rolexes and Porsches were up in the U.S., which mm-hmm. on the face of it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it, what we're seeing is a, not only the uneven nature of this step-down collapse, but the fact that in, in the book you refer to partial periods of recovery, and that mm-hmm. can be you know over years, but it can also be you know not everyone's doing really badly right now. Some people yeah. quite unfairly are doing you know absurdly well. Mm-hmm. Well, one of, the, one of the consequences of the spinning of the presses, of the flooding the economy with, with paper money, is that people who have access to those flows of paper money can buy a lot of things. They can buy an unfair share. They can buy the Jaguar. They can buy the Rolex watch. They can buy, you know, because they've got access to this flow of money. And while the money still maintains its value before hyperinflation sets in, as it will, um, there's a lot of things you can get with it. Because people are desperate, people want to sell. Um, you know, there, there's so yeah, it's 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 a very convenient time to have access to to a flow of money because you can actually get quite a bit with it. Now you referenced um, the idea of uh, various little <clears throat> excuse me uh, fronts on which people were personally dealing with their changed circumstances. You know, mm-hmm. producing some food at home and uh, maybe reskilling in something mm-hmm. you know that would be 
if they were already in IT, that they might realize that had gone away for them, that maybe they could learn to repair shoes or something useful, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that they mm-hmm. could make a living at a, a lesser level, but it would still, going forward, it would, it would probably have a future. Exactly. And I think when facing what we are facing, people initially, of course, turn to authority, those in charge, specifically the politicians. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing increasingly now with, with either inaction or incompetence or actual malfeasance at the political level, mm-hmm. we're seeing an increase in protest. And the mm-hmm. idea being, well, if the politicians won't change it, then we'll go out there and wave placards and we'll make sure it gets changed. But that's proving to be futile. As mm-hmm. we see the way the protesters, for example, at the G20 are treated as mm-hmm. what basically looked like a load of stormtroopers descend on them and mm-hmm. beat the living crap out of them. So going forward, as the change comes down on us, operating initially looking after yourself and then look at and those nearest to you and those around you will be offer a way forward for us because protesting and appealing to politicians is not going to work. Mm-hmm. The politicians have don't know what's going on. They have no clue. They don't get it. There's there are very good reasons why they why they shouldn't get it because one of the things that's going to happen down the road is that they you know, they're toast. Their entire world is toast. All, the only reason that the politicians and the, the financiers, the, 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 the modern rich and powerful, have the wealth and the power that they do is that they know how to manipulate, and they're in a position to manipulate this very complex, very intricate, very brittle, very fragile system that runs on vast amounts of, of fossil fuel energy. As that system breaks down, their power goes away. And they're going to be in roughly the same situation as, as all those heads of, of communist parties in Eastern Europe when the communist parties in Eastern Europe suddenly dissolved out from under them. You know, this is, this is what happens when, when very complex civilizations start breaking down. The formal leadership finds that it has no skills at all that are relevant to the current situation. In the meantime, they're going to defend their, their grip on the levers of power and the flows of, of, of money with everything they've got. And yes, you can go out there and protest. You can wave a sign. You can you can um, shout obscenities at the at the status quo or what have you. And it will either be ignored, or if it becomes sufficient embarrassment, yeah, the the the, the police are going to come in and, and beat the living crap out of you. Uh, you know, or eventually you may be, you may be dragged from your bed at 3 a.m. and um, shot in the head and tumbled into an unmarked grave. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of thing that can happen. It's the kind of thing that does happen all the time in the third world. And one way we can understand the current, our current situation is that the modern industrial nations are becoming third world countries. Because a third world country is a country in the modern world that doesn't have access to a lot of energy. Now, one other, I won't call it a popular reaction to societal upheaval and the threat of potential collapse, but it certainly looms quite large in the popular imagination is the notion of survivalism. Uh, that is to yeah. say, holding up in a bunker or a mm-hmm. um, you know a lodge somewhere in an isolated location with a stockpile of food and everything else you might need, firearms, waiting to fend off the marauding hordes that will descend upon you once the cities go up in flames and the populace go out looking for whatever they can get. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't fancy that myself, I must say, being on either side of that particular uh, coin. And in the book, Mm -hmm. you do address this and you say that um, whether it's a sudden collapse or whether a gradual collapse that, I mean, holding up on our own uh, is not really the way to go. Because I'm reminded and to refer back to the Mad Max films that I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. In the first one, you have the the society on the brink of collapse. Mm 
-hmm. In the second one, you have relatively sudden collapse and people all feeding on each other. In the third one, which is the least good of the trilogy, actually, but you have Barter Town, you have the beginning of the realization that actually the only way we're going to get out of all this is to cooperate together. So whatever happens, the thing that you stress in the book, building community, is going to be much more important than any survivalist fantasy. Oh, yeah. The, the thing is, one of the things that I think survivalists tend to, well, there are two things that they tend to forget. First of all, the survivalist strategy only, only has, would, would only have any chance of working if it's a very fast collapse. If we're looking at a transformation over one to 300 years, uh, a deer camp in the hills with uh, a couple of cases of baked beans and enough ammo for, to equip a Panzer division is not going to do you any good at all. But it's also worth remembering that if you're sitting up there all by yourself or with a couple of friends and you've got the cans of the beans and the ammo and the other valuable things, you are going to be a magnet for everyone else with a gun who wants to take your stash. And sooner or later, you're, you, know, you, you will fall asleep or be at the wrong window at the wrong moment. Generally speaking, and this is very typical for a, for, for a civilization that's based on consumerism, many, many, many people want to know, what can I buy to keep myself safe? What products can I, stack, can I buy and stash that, that will save me from this? It doesn't work that way. Because if the only value you've got to the future is the stuff you're sitting on, somebody else is going to come along and take you off that stockpile, you know, sooner or later. If your value to the future is what you can do, that's another matter. One of the things I tend to, I tend to advise people in this country, especially where we have, we have so little good beer, is, is to encourage people to learn how to brew beer. Okay? If Attila the Hun comes riding up to your front door and you can hand him a mug of decent beer, you've got a friend. So I wondered when you would get round to this, actually, because one of the things I had on my notes was beer, just the word beer, beer exclamation mark, because when I read the book, I, you referred to beer sufficiently often that I thought, this guy likes beer. Not, I, I not, do. I, not, indeed, I do. Not in an out-of-proportion way, but he likes. He stresses the idea of beer making as a skill to be very valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, well, I just want to say I'm a fellow fan of real eel, you know, the proper stuff. And I did get uh -huh. some good stuff out of the States recently called Blue Moon. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Yes, there, these days we're in the early stages of the rediscovery of decent beer over here, and so I'm, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that among other things, my my advocacy for for beer brewing will get will get more people thinking about something other than that ghastly yellow piss water that passes for for beer in in most in the eyes of most Americans. Bud Light. Oh man, <laughs> I wouldn't even use that on slugs. <laughs> But no, your point is, your, the serious point is, is well made. It's like what you can bring, what you can offer to mm -hmm. yourself, to a community, to the world, mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. that will have always been of use. They may have been temporarily out of fashion or even seen mm -hmm. as obsolete in quotes, mm -hmm. but that will not always be the case. And in fact, in times where there have been, has been complete anarchy, I'm thinking of the pirate societies of the Caribbean, for example, the most violent, lawless human societies in history, some of them. Somebody who had a useful skill, their life was sacrosanct. You, do, you, know, you don't hassle the physician. You don't hassle the shipwright. Various people like that. You, you do your brawling somewhere else because this guy is going to save, can save your life. And this, and this is the kind of thing that, that tends to work in times of social collapse. If you have skills that other people need, they will make sure that you're, that, that you're okay. Because it's that valuable to them. If you, can, if, you, if you can patch up their bullet holes or if you can brew them beer, if you can do, if you have these skills, 
you're necessary. You're, you are necessary to their survival. They will make sure you survive. And this is one of the things that I tend, that I tend to stress in talking to people of this. Get some useful skills, partly because you're going to need them now, partly because other people are going to need them later, and partly also because these are things that need to be passed on to the future. And if nobody knows how to do them 200 years from now, it's going to be a miserable experience or more miserable than it has to be. Well, yeah, I read that the section of the long descent where you talk about some of these things with, with a sort of pang of regret and guilt somewhat because I feel I personally feel useless compared to my grandfather who could turn mm -hmm. who could turn his hand to anything. Mm -hmm. um, he could you know, build, do masonry, woodwork, metalwork. Mm -hmm. He could fix mm -hmm. a car. Mm -hmm. he, he could just do things that I, he sort of obliquely offered me the chance to learn from him because my father wasn't in the picture, so it was my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I kind of politely, yeah, thanks, Pops, you know, thanks for showing me that stuff, but I'm more interested in, uh, you know, my guitar or whatever, and mm -hmm. or being with my, my friends. And even that's just two generations ago, and mm -hmm. I now is, uh, you know, basically middle-aged. I, I feel hopelessly unskilled compared to even a man of his generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I suppose, well, I should just say that's down to me to do something about it, I suppose, isn't it, really? Yeah, well, the thing is, most of us are in that situation unless we've already got to work. The important thing is not to let the, the magnitude of the difference blind us to the fact that there are actually things we can do right here, right now. Just choose a skill. Don't let yourself get, and this is something I have to tell a lot of people, it's very easy to get, to get weighed down by being aware of the gap between where you are and where people were two and three generations ago. But at least you can choose a single skill right now and get to work learning it. There's a Russian proverb about not how it's a bad idea to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And we have to focus on the good now, not on the perfect. The perfect will come if it eventually gets there. But what can we do now? And, the, the, you know, it's, it's Ernest Thompson Seton, who was a naturalist and an artist and a very interesting person in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, had, had a slogan that he used, wherever you are with what you have right now. And I think that's a really good slogan to keep in mind as people start grappling with the consequences of the long descent that we're already in. Wherever you are with what you have right now, you can, you can, you can learn something now. You can develop skills now. You can do certain things now and at least make a start. And it isn't all about the future that a lot of people may feel that they may never experience it. It is about now as well, because in doing things like in, in adopting certain coping strategies, you know, reducing your energy use, and mm -hmm. as we just discussed, maybe choosing a new and more viable profession, or mm -hmm. taking charge of your own health, and mm -hmm. and what have you, and, and community networking. A lot of positives can flow from that immediately. Exactly. It, among other things, let's take let's take energy conservation. You can you can actually find I, I don't know if it's true on your side of the pond, but certainly over here, you go into a used bookstore. You can find a lot of old books from the 70s that that'll explain to you how to do energy conservation. You put that stuff to work, you can easily cut your energy use by half. That's money in your pocket right now. It's not for some far future purpose. It's it's called like, you know, having an extra. 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 pounds a month to play with. Or you decide to get rid of your car. Um, if, you, if you live someplace where you can manage it, if you, your relation, you, where, where you are with relationship to where you work, if that can be made to work. And sooner or later, you're going to. It, it really is that simple. But in the meantime, you get rid of your car. Uh, this is something I've experienced. I don't own a car. I've heard it from many other people. Then you suddenly say, Why is, where is all this money coming from? 
because all of a sudden you don't have the car payments and the insurance and the gas and the maintenance and all the rest of it. And, and there's all this additional money in your life you don't know where it came from. I know half a dozen people who've had that experience. There's a lot of this stuff that can improve your life immediately. Right here, right now, we are already in long descent. So it's not about the future. It's about taking steps right now to deal with where we are with what we have right now. now of course, I'm drawn to think, uh, mind wandered off when you were speaking there, tangentially thinking about all the people um, who never, you know, we, we had this sort of, all the biggest slice of the pie during the industrial era mm-hmm. as uh, the, age, the age of oil comes to an end and all the millions and billions of people around the world, some not yet even born, who never had any of that. And, of course, you can see attention there now somewhat in China and other so-called emergent uh, nations mm-hmm. and developing markets that they're all scrambling for the things. They want their century of the good life that we had, and mm-hmm. that's, that's not really on the cards, is it? No, most of them are never going to experience that. China's going to get a little of it because it's, it's not merely an emerging nation. It's a rising imperial power. And it is able, it, it can use its clout in the world to redirect increasing uh, resource flows from other countries to itself. Um, most of the rest of the world is never going to experience that. And, you know, that's just... We, we, we as a species did not manage our brief period of carbon fueled extravagance that well. Now, one thing, um, I guess, as we kind of draw towards the end of our discussion for today, one thing I wanted to mention was something I absolutely loved uh, towards mm-hmm. the end of The Long Descent, when you mentioned the film June, mm-hmm. and the little section about, because I hadn't read the book since I was a teenager, not watched the film in maybe 20 years, and mm-hmm. you reminded me about the um, Butlerian Jihad mm-hmm. in June, and perhaps you can say a little bit about what that is and how that uh, fits in with your idea of uh, technology, a lot of modern technology going away, and how mm-hmm. it will, once again we will realize that human beings are more than just users of technology and that technology mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. somehow greater than us. It's actually a, a, an invention of ours. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Butlerian Jihad in, in, the, Dune, in the, the Dune universe back in, back in the some centuries before the book opens, there was a widespread revolt against um, intelligent machinery, against computers. Um, the, the Butlerian commandment is, thou shalt not make a machine in the image of a human mind. And one of the characters actually explains to another early on, it's the, the, uh, the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother, a priestess basically, explained to the main character, that once men turned their thinking over to machines, in the hope that this would free them, but it simply meant that they were enslaved by the people who owned the machines. Now, we've taken a different path. And, and so in the, in the imaginary future of Dune, instead of having computers, you have people who are trained to think. You have people called mentats who have, who have highly trained memories and, and, resource, and, and, and um, reasoning processes who can think at the speed of a computer. And... This, if people go, well, yes, that's science fiction. But in fact, this kind of thing actually existed in the Renaissance. We have things called the art of memory, the ars memorativa, as it was in Latin. Um, there were various systems of conceptual algebra, like, like the Lillian art and so on. Stuff that you never hear about nowadays. Because our whole society is fixated on this notion that 
what we ought to do is replace all of our actual human capacities with machines. In, in, you know, in place of feet, well, you know, we have cars or we have various other you know, personal mobility devices. In, in place of an imagination, we have a television. In place of memory, we have a little blackberries or what have you. Uh, we're replacing all of our human capacities with these machines. Well and good as long as you don't mind being a blob of protoplasm being pulled around to push around and, and you know, by, by machinery. Except for the fact that the energy to run the machines is running out. And so we're faced once again with the, with, the, with the question, okay, how are we going to do these things? And the answer is very simple. Trained people, trained minds. Hmm. There's a world of human possibility that awaits rediscovery. Things that, 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 that our great-grandparents knew about dimly, that our more distant ancestors knew about intimately, because they were part of everyday life, we've forgotten because we pushed it all off on machines. Now the machines are, you know, saying, "Sorry, we're going now. You got to take care of this yourself." Are you aware of a guy called uh, John Zerzan? Oh yeah. I just wonder because I've re read something of his recently, and it, I don't know if you would say his basic premise is that technology has been a bad thing. Not, yeah. not in the simple little things it might have enabled or the people it might have kept alive and the things it might have helped us with, but its overall effect on, mm -hmm. on human society and human interaction. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that would, would uh, nexus in somewhat with your idea that the future mm -hmm. we are facing, a deindustrializing and, and, and you know, mm -hmm. technologically simplifying world, will, can, can ultimately be a better one if we choose to make it so. Well, yeah, I, I disagree with Zerzan's idea that, that, well, first of all, there is no single thing called technology. Yes. Okay, there are these whole suites of different technologies, each of which embodies whatever the values were that, that um, define it, that uh, were central in the eyes of the people who, who created it and applied it. Um, while technology is not value-free, you can't simply say that there is this thing called technology and it is you know, collectively good or collectively bad or collectively anything. I think that, um, that there are certainly many technologies that are very good things. And there are other technologies that have generally been very bad things, and a lot of others that have, have a lot of moral wiggle room in them. So, but but there, is this, there is an extent to which the way that technology has been used, especially in the last century, has been very demeaning and very dehumanizing. It has been very much a matter of replacing the human with an artificial earth technological simulacrum, and that has not been good for us as human beings. Now that the energy that's that, that makes that possible is going away, we have to redevelop those human abilities that those machines are placed. And that's going to be a strain for a lot of people, but it's a necessary strain and I think ultimately a healing one. So when the TV goes off because there's a temporary power cut and people kind of just decide to get angry for a while, Eventually, they get the scrabble out and light a candle, and actually, they end up having a really good evening. So, it'll just be like that in a really big scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the thing is, I, 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 one of the things that I highly encourage people to do is to take their television out and, like, chuck it into the dumpster. The single most effective way you can free up time, free up your mind, and get the capacity to do something original, uh, to actually go out and have a life instead of sitting there like, uh, you know, like, like, like a potato on the couch, is to get rid of your television. Mm. Well, I have also, I have also noted, I've also noticed, there, there used to, there used to be an organization here in the states called the Society for the Eradication of Television. One thing they do for a fundraiser is they'd get a bunch of old televisions and a bunch of sledgehammers with you know face protection and gloves, and for 
uh, for a dollar a whack, people could beat up the televisions. And you'd find that once people actually took a swing at the thing, they'd start realizing just how much they hate it, how much they loathe the whole thing. And they've just been doing this sort of numb, drug-like TV trance because it's there, but they hate it. Once they get past that and realize it, you know, they hand over a $20 bill and reduce the television to, the television to powder. So I think, I think there's a lot to be said for just, you know, get rid of your television to reclaim your life. Well, I mean, not that many decades after television became widespread, it's almost still the perfect metaphor for so many things that are wrong and possibly, possibly the, the, the ultimate metaphor of maybe alongside the car or something of this, you know, the, the age of oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a destructive force, you know. It encourages people to be passive, to be dependent, to sit at home, stay away from community, and spend all their time drooling over consumer products. Well, of course, one day, it may or may not be in our lifetimes, but one day we may not be able to have a conversation like this. It may be impossible for technological reasons. And, and I hope when that happens that maybe we could sit in the garden, light a fire if it gets cold, and uh, and share a few beers um, on the same continent. That would be good. That would be a good thing. Well, the idea that uh, the future is going to be somehow less than the past is anathema, I think, probably mm-hmm. to a lot of people. But it is happening. It's going to happen. And the long descent has begun. The industrial age is, to all intents and purposes, over. Mm-hmm. Well, it's ending. We're still going to have a search. And we can talk about that um, at, at some future date when we talk about my book, The Ecotechnic Future, where I talk about the various stages by which the, um, the industrial age winds down. Well, I very much look forward to that. John Michael Greer, author of The Long Descent, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank, you. thank you very much for having me on. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this time. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to check out John's blog at thearchdruidreport.blogspot.com and of course his books, including The Long Descent, are available at Amazon and all worthy outlets. Now look out for a future part two when John will be joining us again and we'll be discussing his other book, or one of his other books rather, um, The Ecotechnic Future. The end of the industrial age has begun. It is indeed the end of the world as we know it. What awaits us on the other side is up to us. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.